Why should a child be afraid to go to school? It was almost like catnip for, for TV producers. They could just go to Boston or these other cities, put their cameras on white protesters, and that became the image that got seared in the minds of American viewers. The Black community was furious that, um, that it was a coordinated effort to disenfranchise them and sort of steal back political power. There was definitely resentment. And so is, is that racist? The real story is overshadowed by sort of a mythical oversimplification. This is Disintegration, a podcast looking back at one of the most painful chapters in Boston's history, the desegregation of Boston public schools in the 1970s. I'm Jesse Remedios. And I'm Valerie Wences. We'll also take a look at where Boston is today, how much has the city changed in the past five decades? Or does it deserve its reputation as one of the most racist cities in America? As historian Matthew Delmont said in a previous episode, the busing crisis was, quote, catnip for the local TV cameras, with their lens focused on the drama, the violence, and the chaos. But what got lost was what led up to this. The decades of unequal educational experience of black and white children in the Boston public schools. Our colleague Maya Jones spoke with two black journalists about what it was like to cover this story up close and if they think they got it right. On September 12, 1974, the start of court-ordered school desegregation was met with huge protest in South Boston, which was the city's main Irish Catholic neighborhood. Angry white protesters violently attacked school buses carrying African-American children. This marked the beginning of heightened racial tension and violence within the city. The desegregation in Boston continued to headline print and broadcast news for the next few years. Gary Armstrong was a broadcast news reporter when this all unfolded. If you were Black in a white community or white in a Black community, community, you were putting your life on the line, but at the same time, we were reporters. That was the story. It was an important story. That's Gary Armstrong. Before retiring, he worked at Channel 7 News in Boston for 31 years. He joined the channel in the 1970s and was one of the only Black reporters at the time. I caught up with Armstrong on a Saturday afternoon over Zoom to learn more about his reporting during this time, specifically his coverage of Boston's busing crisis. He starts our conversation by telling me about his observations of Boston's racial problems before the events of busing began. Being a baseball fan, I, I knew the, the history of the Red Sox at that point. They were really bad, obviously, in terms of uh, hiring um, black players. They had a guy named Pumsey Green, who was their only black player at that point. I, I guess, long story cut short, I had a sense that Boston did have a racial problem. Um, and it was really obvious around Fenway Park, which took a long time to come to grasp w- with that problem. Armstrong was a Brooklyn, New York native and was not phased by Boston's racism. He says that he was used to it as a person of color and was used to being one of the only people of color in everything he did. Oh, gosh. High school, through college, through uh, small time radio, through the network. I was always one of the few. When the busing crisis began, Armstrong was already working with Channel 7 News. 
He recalls an interaction that he had with the channel's news director when he first joined the team. I met the news director. He was a tall Texan, 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, and he had a broad Southern accent. And uh, he said that they were pleased with, uh, you know, what I was bringing to the station. But the, the fellow looked at me and said, you know, you're going to be my black reporter. You're going to do all of my black stories. And we're so thrilled to have you. And so I just looked at him and I, with a straight face, I said, I'm a reporter. And I told him about some of the stories I'd covered. But he said, you're my black reporter. I said, no, I'm your reporter. And I, I, um, I was still aware of the fact that they were going to use me for minority stories. Armstrong's role as token minority reporter initially restricted his coverage of the busing crisis to black neighborhoods in Roxbury and Dorchester. Meanwhile, the channel assigned white reporters to cover white neighborhoods of South Boston and Charlestown. And when busing came up, it was obvious that they were going to send me to the black community to be their face, giving them their sense of diversity as, as the story began. Being the designated face of the black community put pressure on Armstrong to report on the busing crisis in a certain way. They assumed that I would give a black slant, a positive black slant to, to the story. And uh, I, you know, trying not to ruffle too many feathers at that point, I just said, again, I'm a reporter and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be objective. His objective coverage was criticized by many, both black and white viewers. The black community labeled him as an Uncle Tom and an advocate for the white community. Meanwhile, the white community had mixed feelings about his coverage, including them. Disgruntled viewers eventually escalated into something sinister. Uh, I would receive letters in uh, red crayon with all kinds of obscenities uh, telling me I should get out of town, sometimes threatening my life, threatening my family. Um, and that came from both communities, communities. And I thought I must be doing something right. If I'm getting praise and also being criticized, I must be doing something right. As the busing crisis continued, he started to get assignments to cover South Boston and Charlestown high schools. By this time, racial tension in the city was volatile, and he and his crew found themselves in the face of violence in South Boston. I was completely aware of this group of uh, white dissidents approaching me, throwing rocks and bottles and calling me the N-word. And I knew it was dangerous, but as a reporter, you, you, you throw all of that out. All you're focused on is you have to get your film back, get it processed because it was a delayed story. So that was my concern. Armstrong was more focused on protecting the safety of his film than protecting himself. However, he soon realized just how dangerous this violent group could be. So he thought of a swift solution. And I just held up my hands like this without saying anything. And some of them started to back off when I held up my hands. And I, I smiled my phony TV smile. And um, I said, wait a minute. I, I, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm not an N. I'm a Samoan. And I could see in their eyes, they started to believe me. And I was thinking, golly, they really are stupid. And I said, I'm not an end. Really, believe me, I, I'm a Samoan. And you could hear them mumbling, oh, 
He's not, he's not an end. He, he says, no, and he's okay. He's okay. And they, they dropped their rocks and bottles. He was able to safely get into the car with the film and head back to Channel 7. But his newsroom heard an entirely different story. In those days, we just had the old-fashioned two-way radio in the car for communication. And uh, the news uh, grabber, the assignment editor said to me, no, he didn't say to me, he said to the the, uh, crew, uh, how is Gary doing? And they said, well, what do you mean? And the assignment editor in the newsroom said, we heard he had been pummeled badly by the crowd. He'd been beaten badly and he's in the hospital and he's in bad shape. So I grabbed the two-way mic and I said, guys, I'm okay. I've got the film. I'm fine. And they said, no, you can't be fine. We just heard it on the radio. You're in the hospital. You're in bad shape. I said, guys, you have to sometimes know the difference between truth and what you hear. I said, I'm fine. I'm bringing the film. And they said, okay, too bad. You know, that would have been better if you'd been beaten up. It would have been a better story. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm fine. And to this day, Armstrong claims that some people still believe that he is Samoan. I wish I, I wish I could be more dramatic with that, but it sounds far-fetched, but uh, that's how that happens. While Armstrong was covering the busing crisis for TV, Catherine Kennedy covered the crisis for the Boston Globe. When the crisis began, Kennedy was one of the only Black reporters at the Globe. I was technically a rookie from the standpoint of being a reporter. I had been at the Globe for five years prior to going to grad school, and I had just come back to work in July before the September school opening. So... As a rookie, I did not expect to have a major assignment. That's Catherine Kennedy. She is now the director of Boston University's Howard Thurman Center for Common Ground. I had a chat with her in the Martin Luther King room there. She explains that her identity as a Black Dorchester native gave her a unique edge when it came to reporting on the busing crisis. I absolutely had trust in the community because at that time, I was the only Black reporter, male or female, that was born and raised in Boston, had been raised in the Boston public schools and was still living in the community. So I knew all of the movers and shakers in the community, the people that were making decisions about this whole busing uh, crisis. And, but that also added pressure because I knew they expected me to be the professional reporter, but to also highlight the drama of the incident. Kennedy says that her original assignment for covering the busing crisis was to go observe the Freedom House, which was the community center being used to coordinate how students were assigned to buses and schools. However, she ended up going undercover as a bus monitor for five days. Her experience during her first day riding the bus sticks with her the most. I wasn't prepared to experience the violence as just a regular human being. And I'm saying human being, but I really mean as a regular adult person. I really approached riding the bus as an assignment. And I, I didn't think about whether or not 
there would be violence waged against that particular bus that day. The violence that Kennedy and children on the bus endured was unimaginable. The crowd was throwing rocks, breaking the glass, um, and at one point, because the bus had to move slow, um, they gathered around it and was trying to rock it. And, um, and so that was pretty dramatic. And we did have a police escort, and they were trying to disperse the crowd so the buses could move forward. Um, and we ultimately did and were able to uh, enter the schools. After the first day, the vile behavior from the crowd continued. So, for example, another day that was pretty dramatic, when the crowd was no longer throwing stones or trying to tip the bus over, they were still out there in mass screaming at the bus and the children. And I remember one day there was a man who had evidently gone to a butcher shop and got this long bone that clearly had come out of a side of beef because it still had raw meat hanging on it. And he was shaking it at the bus saying, this is what you eat. This is what you eat, your animals. While all this trauma was happening around her, Kennedy had to maintain her disguise as a bus monitor. She could not risk blowing her cover. I remember that I had to, you know, take notes and I wasn't able to do it while the incident was hap incidents were happening because I was supposed to be a monitor, not a reporter. So I had to count on my memory. Um, and that was not difficult because when you experience that much drama, it sort of stays with you. But I also, when I got ready to write, and I did write a little bit every day so that I would have an accurate accounting, I did do it on a day-by-day -day basis. What happened each day? The story overall may seem like everything happened in one day, but it was over a period of days. She went on to explain the other complexities that came with covering this story. The violence she experienced had a deep effect on her psyche at the time, yet she had to set that aside in order to be an objective reporter. I mean, I had to sort of push some of that down when I got ready to write so that I would report it accurately but not let my emotion cause me to editorialize in the story. But my editors were very helpful and encouraging by saying that this isn't an ordinary story, so you can't follow all of the rules that you learned in journalism school. The main rule being that you never put yourself in a story if you're being an objective news reporter. And so that was my biggest conflict. How do I write this without it, without it being in the first person when everything I'm writing about was in the first person? And I was that person. So I had to sort of learn how to write in the first person for this particular incident. Armstrong and Kennedy both won awards for their coverage of the busing crisis. Armstrong won three New England Emmy Awards in 1976, 1977, and 1978. 
Kennedy's team at the Boston Globe received the 1975 Pulitzer Prize for Meritorious Public Service. The whole newspaper never expected to win a Pulitzer. And to be honest, we never celebrated that we won a Pulitzer. It was determined by the management and the editor-in-chief of the newspaper at the time that this was not a glory story. While we, might, we were proud that we had done good work that garnered that honor, we never celebrated it. Looking back at the busing crisis, both Kennedy and Armstrong feel like the real story got lost in images of chaos and racial violence. They say that education inequality was the real story and the real problem in Boston. And as an African-American child who grew up in the Boston public school system, Kennedy knew this problem well. Well, I think the only thing that was missing in the story, which no one could have written, was what the children were experiencing in the classrooms. I knew there was negativity in the classrooms. I had experienced it myself as a student in the Boston public schools, how you know the teacher doesn't call on you or ignores you if you raise your hand with a question while they're teaching. Um, or I even had an incident where the teacher in front of my face tore up my homework and threw it in the trash and marked it as not done. So those are the kinds of things that I could never write about in this particular instance, because nobody was there to experience that. All I could experience was what happened once they got in the school and they went into their classrooms, but I was not allowed in the classrooms. After talking to family after family, Armstrong learned that this story was really about fighting for change in the classrooms. Parents expressed their frustration, Black parents expressed their frustration at the lack of quality education, the lack of quality textbooks, the lousy curriculums, no sense of black history. Um, and so what they wanted was that the, their children, this is what they had fought for the previous generation. They had fought to have their children receive quality education and that's what they wanted. I asked Armstrong what he would do differently if he could go back in time and report the story again. I, I wish I had spent more time talking with um, parents and students. I did my best talking with parents and students about the education issue. I was too focused on the emotional because that's what I was supposed to get as a reporter. And I, I, I was young enough to not see the big picture in the beginning. During the busing crisis, his bosses in the newsroom were looking for stories that fit the agenda of racial violence. They didn't, you know, in a way, they didn't want the story that complex. They wanted to see angry people. They wanted to hear yelling. They wanted to see people calling me names. And uh, it, it, was, it was difficult. And because of the media's agenda at the time, Kennedy believes that the true purpose of court-ordered desegregation got lost in translation. You know, people always misunderstood what the purpose was. And white people were just absolutely afraid of having their children sit next to black children. And black families wanted the public to understand it's not about whether or not we want our children to socialize with their children. 
We want our children to have equal access to education the same way that your children do. Thanks to our colleague, Maya Jones, for that episode. Up next on Disintegration, we'll hear from the man who was nearly killed by busing protesters, but continued to make racial justice his life's work. Disintegration is a production of Podcasting 101 at Boston University's College of Communication. The music in this episode was provided by Gotama via Free Music Archive. The song used is titled In the Heart of Night. I'm Valerie Wences. And I'm Jesse Remedios. Thanks for listening.